0: guys, and welcome to the Moms of Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend,
1: Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing awesome. How are you? I'm doing really good. Can I tell you about a fun thing that you already know about that happened that was really cool this week and we've talked about already, but it's really kind of fun? <laughs> sure. <laughs> you should have just said no. No, this week I ran into somebody. We've always talked about how we never... Nobody's ever recognized us out in the wild, and somebody asked me if I was Melissa, and I almost said no because I thought they were going to hand me like legal paperwork, and then (laughs) I was at an Old Navy, and it was a lovely girl named Kendall, and she listens to our show, and she was super nice, so I just wanted to say hi to Kendall in a way that's not weird because I feel like I was very weird, which I know you're shocked about. Anyone listening is very surprised that I would be awkward (laughs) at all. And I can confirm this because my daughter was there. And when we walked away, she said, Mom, you were very weird. (laughs) So, Hi, Kendall. Mandy, please say hi to Kendall, because I feel like really after that, she would rather hear from you than me ever again in her life.
0: Hi, Kendall. Maybe we'll run into each other next time and I will try to make it less weird. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think
1: that sounds promising. But yes, week was good. Everything's good. Life is good. I feel good. Yes. And we have one of the craziest stories. And I feel like we've said this before, but we were lying. I think this might be the craziest story we've ever done. It is bananas. I
0: don't know. I just, like you said, I hate to keep saying that over and over again because we keep finding these ones that we keep saying that about. But yes, this story is really, really crazy. And this was one that was researched for us by Haley. And she does such a great job with researching. And so when I started reading over the research, I was like, wait a minute, like this is, there's just a lot here. So (laughs) this is a really very interesting story. And I'm really excited to get into it this week. Me too. In the wee hours of June 16, 1987, first responders in Tennessee arrived at the scene of a fire where a local church was heavily engulfed in flames. Fire officials worked quickly to put out the fire by placing a hose through a second-story window and flooding the building until the flames were finally extinguished. Once the fire was out, firemen carefully entered the church to investigate the cause of this inferno, but when they searched through the church's attic, they stumbled upon something unsettling. It was a suspicious-looking pile of debris in one corner of an otherwise typical-looking attic. Police were called in to help investigate the scene, and what they discovered was like something straight out of a horror movie. It was the decapitated body of an unknown man who had been wrapped in a rug and had several items placed on top of him before the killer doused the church in gasoline and set it on fire. This crime took place at Emmanuel Church of Christ in Nashville, Tennessee, and before we get into the details of this disturbing case, we're going to tell you a little about Nashville in this week's segment
1: of We Googled This City. Nashville is the capital of Tennessee and has a population of around 691,000 as of the 2017 census. Nashville is known as Music City and is home to what was originally named the WSM Barn Dance, but later became what we know of as the Grand Ole Opry in 1927. If you aren't familiar with the Grand Ole Opry, it's not only a place where country music stars perform, but it's also the world's longest-running live music radio show. The second (laughs) longest-running... The second longest-running is the Venti Ole Opry. It just... (laughs) It just doesn't have the same ring to it and also does not exist. And I forgot it was grande and not grand. So my Starbucks joke was actually pretty terrible. <laughs> Here's for more jokes. Maxwell coffee was actually locally produced at the Maxwell House Hotel in Nashville. And Theodore Roosevelt actually drank a cup of this coffee and stated that it was, quote, good to the last drop. And thus a multi million dollar slogan was born that day. But from what my husband says about Maxwell House Coffee, there's a good chance what Roosevelt actually said was, gross, let's go get a pop. Next. (laughs) (laughs) I had to use pop instead of Coke just to make that joke halfway work, and I'm not happy with myself. That's such a northern thing to say. Sorry, we're Coke people down here. So (laughs) RCA Studio B is a historic studio in where Elvis Presley recorded over 200 of his songs. During one of these recordings, Elvis was working on a Christmas album, and he wasn't feeling especially festive. To help him out, the people that were working with him strung up Christmas lights, and those Christmas lights are still there today. So Elvis and I, I feel like, are pretty similar. I definitely like to get in the Christmas mood. Christmas lights are something that helped me a lot. I also love fried sandwiches, and for as many fried sandwiches as I, as I eat, there is a decent chance I will also die on the toilet. More. <laughs> That one was a really roundabout way to make a terrible joke. Morris Frank. This is an interesting one, Mandy. Morris Frank was a blind Vanderbilt University student that left the U.S. and headed overseas to investigate the usage of seeing eye dogs. In 1928, he founded the Seeing Eye Inc. in Nashville, and he actually brought over the first service dog back to the U.S. I don't have a joke about that. I thought that was just really cool that that's how service dogs began to be incorporated in the U.S. Yeah. Yes. And lastly, Our Lady Oprah spent some of her childhood living in Nashville, which is where her father was from. When she was just 19 years old, she began working at WTFV TV and became the city's first African-American news anchor. And now, everyone, if you look under your chair, we've left something for you. You get a new episode. You get a new episode. You get a new episode. Everybody gets a new episode. Go ahead, Mandy. (laughs) I love Oprah, and I love giving –
0: well, I love that she gives away free things. I don't know about us, except episodes. We can give those away for free. (laughs) Perfect.
1: It works this week.
0: There you go. In the aftermath of the fire that nearly burnt down the Emmanuel Church of Christ, investigators had to work to identify the remains of a man that was found rolled up in a rug in the church's attic. The scene was really grisly. Detective Robert Moore was assigned to the case, and he described it as one of the most gruesome homicide cases he had ever seen in his career. In addition to being decapitated, the right arm of the victim had also been severed from the elbow down, and there were patches of skin that had been cut away from other areas of the body. Although the body and the surrounding items were severely charred, it wasn't burned entirely, and police were able to observe clues about who the victim might be. They noted that the man was large in size and that there was a belt around his waist that was engraved with the letter T, and there was also a pair of shoes near the body. Detectives learned that the minister of the church was a man named John David Terry, and it was quickly determined based on the size of their victim and the other clues that they found that the body in the attic was, in fact, John David himself. John David's wife confirmed to police that she had given him a belt with the letter T engraved on it as a Father's Day gift the previous year. The working theory going forward was that someone had broken into the church to commit a robbery and then killed John David in the process before lighting the church on fire. However, there were some flaws in that theory, and one of them was that there was no evidence to show any type of forced entry, and there were still expensive electronics and things left inside the church. There was an axe found near the body, but it was determined that it was not used in the murder or in the dismemberment. The congregation and the community as a whole were shocked by this unimaginable tragedy that had taken place inside of their church. No one could understand why someone would want to hurt John David, who had really always been known as being kind and someone who devoted his life to helping.
1: John David Terry was born on July 11, 1944, to parents John Sr. and Pauline. For most of his life, he preferred to go by the name David, so that's what we're going to call him from here on out. David was described as being devoted to his family and to the ministry, which made sense because David's father was a bishop overseer, and David had been raised with a heavy religious influence. His brother said that as a child, David, quote, never caused any trouble or problems, but was well loved by everyone, end quote, and that his brother was totally committed to his church and to his family. David was particularly close with his mom, who he considered his only confidant. In the early 1970s, David became the associate bishop overseer of the Emanuel Church of Christ in Nashville. In this role, he was in charge of business matters, the theological doctrine, and any administrative matters as it pertained to the church. As the associate bishop overseer, David would be next in line for bishop overseer. David was married to his second wife, Brenda, in August of 1972. He had been married once before, but they had been divorced in 1971. Brenda and David had a very ideal marriage and went on to have four children and to live an overall pretty average life. There was really nothing in David's background or history that would explain why someone would target him and murder him in such a gruesome way. As the twilight hours of June 16th progressed into morning, investigators worked to track down leads. After speaking with family
0: and friends, they learned that David was supposed to have been going on a fishing trip the day before his body was discovered. According to David's wife, a man named James Matheny was also going to be going on this fishing trip with David. James was the ex-husband of one of the church's parishioners named Teresa. Teresa and James had been married from 1981 to 1986. Their marriage actually ended due to James's struggles with alcoholism and the effect that his drinking was having on their marriage, as well as concerns on Teresa's end about raising their young son in that environment. Although Teresa made the decision to leave the marriage, she still had great concern for James and hoped that he would be able to get his act together and be a good father to their son. But she was also concerned for his relationship with God and with the church. In 1987, James was hospitalized due to complications from his alcoholism, and this was somewhat of a turning point in his life. David actually visited James in the hospital several times to provide support and find ways to help in any way that he could. Teresa was thrilled to see that James wanted to get back involved with the church and she wanted to facilitate that any way that she could. So she asked David if he would kind of help her to reach out to her ex-husband and kind of get him back on track. So over the next several weeks and months, David counseled James about his personal problems and he even rented an apartment to him with six weeks of rent already paid and he gave him a job at the church as a handyman making $10 an hour, which would be equal to $23 an hour today. You could say that in the course of this relationship, David and James became somewhat friends. And in mid-June, they planned a fishing trip together. And that's really all police knew about the events that were leading up to the murder and the arson at the church. One thing they didn't have was James. And he was really suspiciously missing, which put him on the investigator's radar as a possible suspect. So it became their top priority to find James Metheny. And there are many more details and a shocking twist still to come in this story, and we're going to get right back into it after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors.
1: Saving money is one of life's greatest pleasures, like hitting all the green lights when you're running late, getting a Diet Coke with crushed ice, or your kid using the restroom and actually aiming. Saving money just feels like you're winning at life, even when it's clear you aren't.
0: I've been using Honey for several months now. There is nothing like knowing that I'm getting the best price on whatever random thing it is that I'm buying that day, from pizza to shoes and literally everything in between. The Honey add-on searches all over the internet to make sure I am getting the best price possible and running through tons of promo codes so I score big time on my savings.
1: I was buying my son a sweater a few weeks ago and while I love the style, the color, the everything about the sweater, I get very, very bitter about paying for shipping. So I hit up my little buddy Honey at checkout and Honey checked through tons of promo codes and not only did it find a code for free shipping, but I was surprised to see that Honey also found me an additional 10% off that I wasn't even aware of. That 10% is what I call the parent tax. Packs, and that will now be used for my diet cokes for the week.
0: Using honey feels pretty great. Think of it as a little daily victory. Plus, it's free to use and installs in just a few seconds. Get honey for free at joinhoney.com/moms. That's joinhoney.com/moms.
1: My years started off rough with illnesses in my family, and to be honest, during that time we were all really eating like raccoons, just throwing whatever we had down our gullets. No planning, just surviving. And guess what? That's okay. And that's really what I like about Noom. After two weeks of feeling sick, I really didn't have that compound of guilt I've had with other programs, because Noom doesn't tell me what to do and what not to do, but it teaches me how to look inside my own brain and to make better decisions for myself. There were days I'd grab the grapes and not the chips because I knew my body needed nutrients to get better. But Noom knows that I'm human and I'm going to make mistakes in eating healthy, so there's no shaming, just tips for getting back on track, which is exactly the encouragement I need to be healthy.
0: I've been talking about getting back to a healthier and stronger version of myself for a lot of years now, but this year I'm actually doing it. Noom has made it easier to visualize the types of food I'm eating as well as keep my portions in check. We're only about six weeks into this year, and for once in my life, I haven't given up on my goals, and that's because Noom is super easy to use. I love that Noom wants to help you learn how to make better decisions and doesn't just throw you out to the wolves. It goes beyond tracking food and teaches you so you are making lifestyle changes. Logging your food on Noom is super easy, and what I really love is that it teaches you about what you are eating. If you have a day with a lot of carbs, Noom shows you your day and offers suggestions on what you can do to make healthier choices next time. No judgment, just guidance
1: and insight. If you're ready to get started with Noom, sign up for your trial today at noom.com slash moms. What do you have to lose? Visit noom.com moms to start your trial today. That's noom.com slash moms. And now back to the episode. So, before the break, we were talking about how police were starting to look at James Matheny as a possible murder suspect and arsonist in the case of the minister, John David Terry. At this point, they still don't know where James is and they were starting to dig deeper into his whereabouts. On the afternoon of June 16th, police actually found David's car just a few streets away from James's apartment. A search of the car revealed a towel with David's blood on it, James's tackle box and reel, a beer bottle, and David's credit cards. These items all had James's fingerprints on them. It seemed like investigators were on the right track with their suspicions that James had murdered the minister and was now on the run. But things were really not at all what they seemed, and detectives were about to learn some shocking and really confusing new information. The charred remains of the body found in the church attic have been sent to the medical examiner, Dr. Charles Harlan's office, for an autopsy to be performed. He determined that the victim had been dismembered 10 to 15 minutes after his death, but he couldn't determine a cause of death based on what he was able to observe of the body. He needed the victim's head to do this, and they did not have that. One thing the medical examiner was sure of, though, was that the body he had just examined did not belong to John David Terry.
0: After reviewing medical x-rays, it was determined that the victim found inside the burning church was actually the man that they first believed was their suspect, James Mathaney. This unexpected turn of events completely changed the course of the investigation, and now the top priority was actually to find David. At this point, several possibilities ran through the minds of the officers. It was thought that David could also be in danger if there was still an unknown third party out there that was responsible for this, And it could be possible that David was abducted and could still be a victim in this case as well. Of course, there was also the possibility that David was actually the one that was behind all of this. This theory that David was responsible didn't really make a ton of sense since he had no criminal history up to this point. But of course, it's still a possibility. The following day, two days after the fire, David finally resurfaced. I saw in one source that he actually turned up at a hospital in Memphis, which is about three hours away from Nashville. Detectives working the case received a tip that he was there and they drove to Memphis themselves to speak to him. When the officers arrived at the hospital and stepped into David's room, they were absolutely stunned. They had seen these photographs of David that were given to them by his family, but the man sitting in front of them looked absolutely nothing like the person that they were saw in the pictures and that they believed they were looking for. One of the detectives said that if he had passed this man on the street, he would have no idea that he was looking at John David Terry. David had recently shaved his head and his eyebrows, and he got a really dark spray tan, and he was wearing casual everyday clothes.
1: Question, Why? why shave your eyebrows? I feel like that's like... I'm going to notice you. That's I don't know. I feel like that does change your look. (laughs) It does change your look, but I'm going to like notice you more. You know, if you're trying to blend in, keep the eyebrows, shave the head. There's, you know.
0: (laughs) Well, same thing with like a really dark spray tan because I feel like everyone notices that. Like, you know, those are definitely things I feel like that would draw attention. But I guess the officers said they didn't recognize them. I feel like spray tans have come a long way. But I feel like you're going to get a lot of attention (laughs) with this new fresh look. Maybe not, like, the kind of attention you want, but I guess you don't want any. I don't know. Terrible idea if you don't want any. (laughs) Right. So as soon as the officers started asking David questions, he clammed right up and refused to speak to them, except to say that his attorney had advised him against speaking to the police. So – Of course, the police are thinking it's definitely strange that David would change his appearance and already have spoken to a lawyer by the time the police found him just two days after this fire. And so they wondered, why does he need an attorney unless he has something that he's trying to hide? So later that day, David ended up leaving Memphis and returned to his home in Nashville His wife, Brenda, noticed that he was covered in bruises and that he had shaved his head, but she said that she did not ask him any questions because she was just happy that he was home, safe, and he was not dead, as the police had initially told her. What a whirlwind for that woman.
1: No joke. The exact words I was about to say was, what a whirlwind. (laughs) We're slowly (laughs) morphing into the same person. (laughs) It's bananas. I honestly just cannot imagine. That's a lot to go through. It reminds me of one of those stories a while ago, terrible story where there's the two car crash victims and one family's told it's their daughter and the other family's told your kid survived, but it's actually Yes, I've heard about that. Oh, the worst story. I mean, amazing for the people that, you know, thought they lost their child and now they're here, but devastating on the other end. And yeah, so I can see how you'd just be like, I don't care what happened. You're alive. I thought you were dead, but let's get some like- Scrub, let's start scrub, scrub, scrubbing, because this is not looking good. And I'm going to grab an eyebrow pencil, because what are you doing? (laughs) The very next day on June 17th, 1987, David turned himself into the police under the advice of his lawyer. David had evidently told his attorney that he had killed James Matheny in self-defense. He said that he confronted James about his alcoholism, and James responded by attacking him. On June 18th, David was interviewed by Detective Robert Moore, who described David as being very matter-of-fact and not remorseful at all. He refused to answer any questions and showed no emotion. He was then indicted on murder and arson charges on June 19th. David never actually spoke on the record until his trial, but prosecutors were able to put together their case against him based on following the trail of evidence. David's wife, Brenda, had seen a change in her husband over the previous three to four years. Beginning in 1984, Brenda said that David began having these intense mood swings and he began to become really withdrawn. He wasn't sleeping much and he had put on weight and the couple's intimacy had plummeted. What Brenda didn't know was that David was fighting an internal struggle regarding the course of his life. He started thinking about leaving the church in 1984, but he knew that he was next in line to become the bishop overseer, and he felt like he just needed to wait a few more years for the current bishop overseer to retire. So instead of leaving the church, he started embezzling money from it. Initially, he used the stolen money to pay for a van and a commercial driver's course with the idea that this new skill would help him with whatever new profession he decided to move on to one day. What? I don't know. I don't even know how to think of that. I would. I don't think I would think. Let me steal money from the church I work at, and now I'm going to start a new career. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, right? it is a little. It is a little strange
0: to use the money for that. I guess, but
1: that was kind of his whole thing. He wanted.
0: He didn't know if he wanted to continue anything in his life the way that it was going. Right. You know, like he he really was struggling just with in general, with finding his direction and, like, what he wanted to do. So it kind of makes sense why he did it, you know. But, yeah, it's definitely – it seems like a weird way to spend the money that you're embezzling from the church. Right.
1: So in March of 1987, David deposited $33,000 of the church's money into his own personal account. That's the equivalent of about $75,000 today. He had $10,000 of the money at his house. He spent $5,000 on a motorcycle, and he kept $15,000 in his bank account. An interesting thing about this motorcycle actually is that David gave it to his first lawyers as part of their payments. But the attorneys realized that the title had a different name on it. David explained that he put this fake name on it because he wanted to keep the motorcycle a secret from his wife. So when the lawyers found out that David had actually embezzled the funds and used those funds to purchase the motorcycle and then give it to them, they stepped down from his case.
0: For years leading up to the murder, David was under the impression that he was going to become Bishop Overseer soon. But in March 1987, the current bishop overseer announced that he did not plan to retire that year. This news greatly upset David and sent him into a downward spiral of self-loathing and dread and he felt like he had failed and even contemplated suicide but ultimately decided to come up with another plan instead. He thought that it would be a good idea to fake his own disappearance and then assume a new identity so he could just start with a blank slate. He was sure that this would allow him to really break free of what he felt was a pathetic life and just start over. He didn't seem to care that it would mean leaving his wife and children behind to forever wonder what happened to him. In April of 87, David started looking into how to go about changing his identity And he saw an ad in Soldier of Fortune magazine for some books on this topic, and he ordered them and read them. So quick question, what was going on in the 80s that you could just order, like there was ads in magazines where you could order books on changing your identity?
1: Oh, I think you could buy them now. I think there's eBooks and everything on that, for sure. Really?
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, I am going to look that up.
1: I'm sure there are. I mean, people change it for different reasons. Typically they're nefarious, but I think people change them to get away from somebody if somebody's stalking them, or I mean, that's like a severe case. People who I don't know, maybe the CIA or somebody has to read those books oh. and <laughs> to learn how to put people in witness protection. There needs to be a source, Mandy. There has to be <laughs> valuable information out there. And I know there are ebooks because I feel like I've actually heard of somebody else doing something. Similar. I could be making this up. Maybe this was law and order. I should probably stop talking. Go ahead.
0: I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I guess it makes sense if you're doing it for... But the 80s were weird.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I don't know. I I just don't know about that. It just seems weird to see an advertisement for that in a magazine. He had originally come up with the idea to take on the identity of an old friend from his childhood who died at age six, but he couldn't get a hold of any records on his friend Ronnie, and instead he searched obituaries at the library to find a potential new identity. Eventually, he found an obituary for a seven-year-old boy named Jerry Milam, who had drowned. Jerry's date of birth was just three days before David's real birthday, so this was really perfect and it would be totally believable. From there, David obtained a copy of Jerry's birth certificate, and he falsified a baptismal certificate, and he used these two items to get a driver's license, a social security card, a fake mailing address, and the title to that motorcycle that he bought with the embezzled money. So just like that, David had secured himself a new identity, but he still had to pull off the hardest part of his plan, which was his actual disappearance. David contemplated whether he should make it look like he had been kidnapped or if he should make it seem as though he had been murdered. He considered the idea of leaving his own blood behind to make it look like he suffered some sort of brutal attack before disappearing. And he really thought about his plan long and hard and he changed his ideas numerous times before coming up with an elaborate plan to fake his own murder. The details of his plan are nothing short of diabolical, and there's even more twists to get into in this case. But first, we're going to take one last break for a word from this week's sponsors.
1: We all know that bra shopping is the worst, the very worst. It's like paper cut bad if you had a paper cut between all of your fingers and all of your toes, and then you wash your hands with rubbing alcohol. Am I being dramatic? No, that doesn't actually sound like me, but I will non-dramatically say that bra shopping is the worst.
0: Thankfully, 3rd Love is different. They know that we hate bra shopping, so they've made it easy thanks to their amazing customer service and Fit Finder quiz. Most of us have guessed our bra size, and it's worked out okay for the most part, but thanks to the Fit Finder quiz, you just answer a few simple questions, and you have your perfect fit in just 60 seconds. Did you know that breast shape matters when it comes to fit? 3rd Love does, and it means you get the perfect bra for your body.
1: And if you don't find the perfect fit, that's okay. 3rd Love customers have 60 days to wear it, wash it, and put it to the test. And if you don't love your new bra, you can return it, and 3rd Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. To date, Third Love has donated over fifteen million dollars in bras. My Third Love bra is the best, most comfortable bra I've ever owned. I love it so much I now own three.
0: Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering our listeners fifteen percent off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get fifteen percent off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com murder for fifteen percent off today.
1: Have you ever gone down a Pinterest hole of amazing recipes only to find out that the new delicious recipe you're wanting to make demands saffron and not only do you not have it, you aren't even sure what it is? Me too. Instead of buying saffron that I'll only use for this one recipe, I can try out new Pinterest-worthy recipes with America's number one meal kit, HelloFresh. HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients means there's not only less prep for you, but there's less food waste. So you just get the saffron you need for that meal, not what Pinterest patty thinks you should have on hand.
0: I love that HelloFresh has something for everyone, including low calorie, vegetarian, and family friendly recipes every week. So if you're sticking with your New Year's resolution to eat healthier, HelloFresh has you covered. And if you decide you want to mix it up a little, you can easily change your delivery days or food preferences and even skip a week whenever you need. This week, I tried the spicy maple chicken with mashed sweet potatoes and roasted green beans. Despite there technically being two vegetables in this meal, my kids actually loved it, and my oldest son said the chicken tasted like a giant sweet and spicy chicken nugget. I think it's a much fancier meal than that, but if it gets him to eat all of his dinner, then I'll take it.
1: HelloFresh has more five-star recipes than any other meal kit, so you know you'll get something delicious. And the deal they are offering our listeners is amazing. Go to HelloFresh.com slash and murder10 and use code moms and murder10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash moms and murder10 and use code moms and murder10 for 10 free meals including free shipping. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were just about to get into the details of the plan that David Terry had come up with to fake his own death and go on to live his life under this new identity. His plan was elaborate, and to pull it off, he would need to kill someone else and make it look like the body was his own. And that's where the unsuspecting James Matheny comes in. When parishioner Teresa asked David to help counsel James, David decided that James would eventually become the man that he would use as a body double. David felt that James was the perfect candidate because they were around the same physical size and he didn't really have very many ties in Nashville. To get his plan into motion, David befriended James and essentially groomed him to become his future victim. This makes me so sick because you he knows he's doing this, but this isn't I killed somebody tonight that I met. This is somebody that you're working with, you're helping out, you have developed a relationship and to some degree they think you have a relationship and you're only doing this to really set up this whole storyline to kill them. It's just so gross, so terrible. In the weeks leading up to the murder, David stashes getaway items such as his clothes and money in the attic of the church. He also kept a gun up there. On June 15th, the day the two were supposed to go on this fishing trip, David gave his kids each $100 and told his wife, Brenda, how to pay some of these bills that he usually paid and he asked her to take care of them this time. From there, David left and went to James' apartment and picked him up. The two men then drove to the church so that David could make some phone calls. When they got to the church, David asked James to take his car to the gas station and fill it up. He also gave him his credit card to pay for the gas with. About a half hour later, David heard James return to the church and he went to see where James was. He saw that the stairs of the attic were pulled down, so he went upstairs to investigate. When
0: he got up into the attic, he saw James there and retrieved the 38 caliber pistol and shot James in the side and back of the head. Once James had been killed, David got right to work at dismembering the body. He then placed the severed head and arm into one bag and placed James' clothes and the knife and the hacksaw he used in the dismemberment into another bag. He took the bag with the clothing and the weapons to a dumpster to dispose of it, and he took the other bag with him. David then made another stop and filled two five-gallon gas cans with gas, and he drove the bag with James' body parts to a mini warehouse or like a storage unit where he kept his motorcycle. After dropping off the bag, David then returned to the church to drop off the gas cans, which he would later use to start the fire. First, he left the church again and went to James's apartment and parked his car nearby. He staged the evidence in the car to make it appear as though he was the victim and James was the perpetrator. He then casually called a taxi, which he had take him to the mini warehouse so that he could pick up the motorcycle and drive it back to the church. Along the way, David stopped at Kentucky Lake and rented a boat, which he used to go out onto the lake and allegedly tied a weight to the bag with James's body parts in it and dumped it into the lake. At this time, it was still during the day. I know it sounds like a lot has happened. Yeah. And he's been I mean, he's been busy running around doing all of these things, but at this time, it was still during the day. And so he's done this entire crime and all of this driving
1: around and going different places in the storage unit and back and forth all in broad daylight. But you know what? That almost seems like a better plan, right? Because at nighttime, I think everyone that's on the road past 8 p.m. is probably committing murder. I just don't trust anybody out driving past eight o'clock. But if he's doing this all during the day, you're not really thinking about it. Everyone's busy going about their business. So to do this all during the day probably didn't raise a lot of red flags. See, I feel like I would be nervous about that because it's I feel like at a
0: church there are people who kind of come and go even during the oh, week. Yeah. You know what I mean? I would that's true. I would be really worried that somebody would go to the church, you know, and find what I had done.
1: Oh, that's true, but it is upstairs. So it's in the attic. So unless you have a reason to go into the attic, that's true. There's no. But I can see just having witnesses, having eyes, you know, there. It's a lot, but as far as like running these other errands and stuff, it doesn't seem so crazy to me to do it during the day because You just aren't thinking a lot of what people are doing during the day. Everyone out on the road at night is definitely a murderer or about to be murdered, in my opinion. I'm just always terrified. (laughs) (laughs) So David returned the boat
0: that he rented, and he waited for nightfall to go back to the church.
1: Once he was at the church, David prepared to start the fire. He first went up to the attic and removed James's tattoos from his arms so that no one could identify the body with them. He then wrapped James's body up in the carpet that the church had used for nativity scenes. David put some chopped up wood in the attic and doused it in gasoline and went down in the sanctuary and poured gas up and down the aisles as well as all over the attic stairs. When it came time to light this fire, David realized that he had not come prepared and had nothing to start the fire with. All this planning and you have nothing to start a fire with. So he has to go to a nearby store and buy a lighter and then return to the church to light the gas. The intention was for the fire to have decimated the body inside. But when firefighters arrived and put the hose through the attic window, they didn't even know it, but the hose had actually landed very close to James's body. And that's what actually prevented it from being totally burned. If the fire had been burning for just five or six more minutes, the body would have been totally engulfed in flames and his whole ruse could have worked. They would have had no idea. They would have to assume that it was, you know, David at this point. So once the fire had been set, David took off on his motorcycle and drove off to Memphis where he paid for two nights in a motel room. He booked the room under the name Jerry Millum, the new identity that he intended to take over. The next day, he left the motel and tossed a 38 caliber pistol used to shoot James into the Mississippi River, and then he called his lawyer before showing back up at his home in Nashville. James Matheny's funeral was held on June 19th at Goff Funeral Home in Monterey, Tennessee. By this time, David's already turned himself in.
0: David's trial began on September 19, 1988 in Davidson County with a jury of 10 women and two men. During the trial, the prosecution presented a theory that David had purposely sent James up to the attic to do a few maintenance things. And once James was up there, David had him right where he wanted him, and it would be easy to kill him with the gun he'd already hidden up there. The prosecution also argued that David never planned to take his own life as he had once claimed. They said that what actually happened was that David realized he could be arrested for embezzling money from the church and that he wanted to disappear to avoid being prosecuted. But since you can't just disappear without police looking for you, he decided on this plan to fake his own death. David's defense was really, really weak, and his attorneys actually didn't even have a closing statement in his trial. Oh, wow. After a quick three-day trial, the jury deliberated for just four hours before finding him guilty of premeditated murder and arson. David was eligible for the death penalty, so his defense team put most of their effort into the sentencing phase and tried their best to get a life sentence with the possibility of parole. A psychiatrist for the defense had evaluated David and found that he was suffering from severe depression at the time of the murder. This doctor, Dr. Robert Begtrup, believed that this cycle of depression began when David's mother passed away. David actually testified on his own behalf that when the church bishop decided not to retire, it made him feel like a failure who did not have control of his own life. He said that while he was killing James, there were voices screaming inside of his head and all he could see was his own face and he thought he was killing himself. So that was his defense, really. For the sentencing phase, the jury deliberated for 12 and a half hours over whether David should receive a sentence of death or life in prison. In the end, they voted to sentence him to death, plus gave him six years for the arson. David later appealed his conviction and sentence on the grounds that the trial court incorrectly charged the jury because the judge said that David committed murder while committing larceny, which is theft of personal property. And I guess their argument was like he wasn't committing larceny at the time of the murder. So we've seen this in other cases where the attorneys will try and get a new trial or a a hearing or they'll try and go back for a second, kind of like getting a second legal opinion, I guess. But- It's always something really small like that. And so it kind of just goes to show like how important those little things are, like just the jury instructions. If they aren't given to the jury exactly right, then this person can have an easy in for an appeal or to have their conviction overturned. So he actually did not end up getting a new trial, but he did win part of that appeal and he was granted a new sentencing hearing. However, in August of 1997, a second jury sentenced him to death. He attempted one more appeal, but the Court of Criminal Appeals upheld his new sentence. While behind bars, David was described as being a model inmate, even working a prison job and sending the money to his wife and daughter every month. On March 14, 2003, at 7:11 a.m., 58-year-old David was found dead, hanging in his cell in the Riverbend Maximum Security Institution in Nashville.
1: You know what's so crazy to me about this story? If like the hose from the fire department hadn't landed where it landed and they weren't able to identify his body, he could have gotten away with this entire thing. And then that makes me think how many other things are like this where somebody has done something like this. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's not that crazy to think that you could actually get away with something. Nobody take notes on this. Like pretend none of I didn't say any of that, but it is kind of crazy that. He had it pretty well planned out, minus like things like having a lighter, but he really did have so many things in place that if only a couple things went right, he could have gotten away with it, which is just terrifying to me. And so upsetting for this guy's family to think he was gonna leave this guy to be dead, but everyone think he's a murderer, and that's gonna be how people remember him forever as a murderer. And it wasn't. He was a victim. It's just terrible.
0: Yeah. The whole story is really crazy and terrible. And like we said earlier with how James Matheny was like groomed to be a victim in this case. And like, that is just, that is the most disturbing part for me is like whenever you are having this relationship Mm -hmm. with someone that you trust, and that's really supposed to be someone that you can trust, especially. And then they are planning to kill you because they have for their own, they've dug their own hole. You know, they have, they've gotten themselves in trouble and now they want to hurt you to cover up what they've done. And it's just really crazy and bizarre and just terribly sad for James's family. And for
1: what? Two days of freedom and a bad spray tan? It doesn't make any sense. There's Nobody won anything in this. It's just terrible all the way around. But it's super interesting story. Thank you so much to Haley for your research on this one. You did an amazing job. We really appreciate you so much.
0: Okay, so we are about to go and do our last thing before we go. If you hate that part of the show, now is a good time to shut it off. But wait, before you do that,
1: <laughs> oh, wait. There's
0: more. I just want to remind everybody that is still listening um, about our live show. It's coming up very quickly. It's on March 27th in Chicago at the City Winery there. And we're so excited. I feel like it's coming up faster than... I thought it would. My heart's beating very fast. <laughs> I, I know. I'm so excited. Me and too. there are tickets still available. We have a link to where you can buy them in our show notes. Check that out, please, if you are in the Chicago area. We would love for you to come see this live in person <laughs> and no editing or anything oh, happening. It, it'll be an experience. It will it'll be, be an some experience. Kind of experience. The Titanic <laughs> was
1: an experience. Can you see
0: how that went? <laughs> So, yes, please do check that out. There is a link in our show notes, and you can also find the information about CrimeCon in our show notes as well. Our code is mm 2020 to get 10% off your standard badge. I think we have mentioned that for a while now. That's not until May. That's May 1st here in Orlando, but there's also a link to everything that you need to know in our show notes, so check those out.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's all going to be really fun. And now, last thing before we go, it's a little different I don't have a name for this game. It's a game people have played throughout history, but I don't know how to explain it. So we'll see how Throughout history? History. (laughs) This is a historic game. (laughs) I think this... My phone just went off, by the way. Something sounded like S-I-R-I, and my phone was like, oh, really? Let's play this. Um, This game has been played throughout history, maybe. Or at least, like, I've played it in my car before. The game is basically, you pick a category, and... One person starts off and the last letter of your word, the next person has to say another word in that category that starts with that letter. We'll start with something easy like foods. And then I have a couple more moms and murdery ones. So Mandy, first one is foods. You pick a food and I'll play off of yours. Ready, set, go. Taco. So now mine starts with an O. Orange. Eggplant. (laughs) (laughs) Tomato.
0: Well, I can't say tacos. Again. No, no, you have to do
1: an O. You're on an O. Oh, so this even this so hard. Okay. <laughs> Oreos, Oreos. So I'm gonna go S. Starburst, Skittles, Skittles. Give you another S. Oh my gosh,
0: this is harder than I, than you think it is. Why can't I think of a food that starts with an S? I
1: don't know. Spaghetti. There you go. Spaghetti. I. <laughs> Ice cream. We'll do two more, and then I want to move categories. Oh, my gosh. I don't even know. Meatballs, marshmallows. <laughs> <laughs> You're on it. Okay. Meatballs. Meatballs. So, S again. <gasps> spam. Okay, we'll end it on spam. Mandy, I have another category. I think this will be more fun. Things you say to your kid. So, you start with a thing you say to your kid, and we'll build off of that. And then let's see if this is just a disaster and we never play it again. Go ahead. What's something you say to your kid? Stop jumping on the couch. So, H. Have I not told you to stop jumping on? (laughs) No, I can't say that. How many times do I have to tell you to pick up your shoes? Oh, so I have to start with Mm -hmm. S.
0: Well, I can easily do that because I I can just say stop and then
1: add literally anything I say Mm -hmm. at any point during the day. That's that's all this is. (laughs) It's just so people know if they should call CPS on us or not. (laughs) I'm so glad
0: we're broadcasting this to the world. Okay. Um, Stop hitting
1: your brother. That's a good one. R. Really, for the last time, please pick up your shoes. I'm sensing a theme here. Oh, my gosh. All the time. Um, Oh, so I have S again. This is a hard game, Melissa. In my head, it was going a little smoother than this, but we're doing great. S. Okay. Um. Oh, there's one. Here's another one I say all the time: stay in the yard. Oh, that's a good one. D. <laughs> dang it, man! Please pick up your shoes in the hallway. So now you have a Y. I <laughs> <laughs> um. I do say "Dang it, man!" Know, a lot no, to I my son. a sentence like, with Why the letter Y. You say this to me. Dang it, man. Um, with a Y. It's a good time to scream, y'all gonna make me lose my mind.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. I was gonna change it up and say, you guys are such sweeties. I say that.
1: I do say that. Oh, that is very nice. That's nice. That leaves me with an S. I do say that. Yeah. Suffering succotash. If I see these shoes one more time in this freaking hallway, I'm gonna set (laughs) this whole house on fire. And that's gonna be where we (laughs) end that. Okay. Oh my gosh! Okay, I don't know how that went. I think we're good. I don't think we need to do another category. I feel like we've embarrassed ourselves enough,
0: right? Yeah, yes. that was um, an, that was an interesting game. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was a history- historically interesting game. <laughs> we'll never do it again, unless someone listen, has. you guys. It's been it has been a time. It has been a week.
0: I am leaving to go on vacation tomorrow. Oh, so
1: please cry, everyone. A river. On- yeah.
0: <laughs> what? We are recording this on a Wednesday and I'm going out of town tomorrow. So, when you guys hear this on Tuesday, I will actually be on vacation. Not, I'm calling it vacation. I'm going to visit my family. I guess that's vacation. Is that, can you call that a vacation if you're just yes, going to see your Yes, it's like, a mom vacation your if sister. you're flying
1: away and there's okay. snow and you get to do things. It's a freaking vacation. Yes, <laughs> it
0: is. So, anyway, I have been in crazy um, planning to go out of town mode. Everybody knows how that is. I told Melissa. You forgot. Like, early in the week, or maybe last week, I told her, I'm going to have all this free time on Wednesday. I don't have anything to do. My flight doesn't leave until the evening on Thursday. I'm going to be home bored on Wednesday. I told her, I'm like, I'll just be working all day. You can contact me. You can reach me. Like, no problem.
1: And I said, okay, Jan.
0: (laughs) I believed it for like every single day until today. And I woke up and I was like, oh, I have a lot of things I have to do today that I didn't even, like, I just now remembered that I'm going out of town or something and I have to do things. So we didn't even start recording this episode until late and I am just a mess. And yeah, it's been, that. that's my excuse for last thing before we go being so interesting this week.
1: (laughs) Well, I take that very personally. (laughs) I
0: wish I could have thought of better things. I mean, I just, I just, not against you I could have been more on my game I feel like so that was just a very long-winded way of telling everyone that I am tired and I need to go pack and get ready to go honestly out of town.
1: there's a good chance a lot of people
0: already <laughs> cut this
1: off don't worry you're just talking to me whenever I'm editing at this point
0: <laughs> I, I, sh- I hope everyone has cut this off by now I okay
1: <laughs> I know we'll be back next week Mandy will be refreshed from her vacation the rest of us are here to just live in life <laughs> Um, She'll be back from her vacation We'll have a new episode Mandy you say our thing Whatever it is
0: Yeah we'll see you guys What do I even say Same Wait I'm gonna You have to You have to do
1: this for me Yes Next week Same time Same place New episode New story Oh gosh Dear god All right, Please get some rest on your vacation Have a great week Bye Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode